We're going to be continuing our series called Made New. This is part eight in that series. And we will be looking at chapter three, verses 12 through 18 this morning. And before we get there, I just want to tell you the big idea that I hope we see in this passage this morning is that because the new covenant produces life change, you and I, believers in Christ, can be bold in our mission to mature and multiply. To put it another way, because the Spirit of God is working in the hearts of believers under the new covenant, we can have confidence that God will use us to help other believers grow. That's the big idea this morning. I hope you're encouraged by this passage. And if you think back to week one of this series, you'll remember that the reason Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians is really because some of the Corinthians in the church had begun to doubt Paul's ministry. They had begun to doubt Paul as an apostle. They had begun to question whether or not he ever encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. They had, they had begun to, to doubt his sincerity uh, as an apostle and as a pastor. And so he writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, to speak against that, to say, I am the real deal. You can trust me. You guys know me. And so this, this is the reason he writes the letter. And at the end of chapter 3, which is where we're at today, Paul is addressing one of the rumors or the charges that had been brought against him in this church. And one of the rumors was that he had somehow taken advantage of the Corinthians. That's the idea that was floating around in people's minds. And so he wants to spend a few chapters dispelling that idea. And so he started this back in chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. What he's saying is, Corinthians, we have not misled you. We spoke the truth to you. We've been honest with you from the beginning. Then the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? What he's saying here is, number one, it was a common practice in that day that when you'd have, you'd have guys visiting different churches, a lot of times the church that they were coming from would send a letter ahead of them saying, this guy's legit, this guy can be trusted. That was a letter of recommendation. So Paul asked the Corinthians, do you guys really need a letter of recommendation about me? I planted that church in Corinth. Paul did, not me. I spent, well, Paul spent, there we go, 18 months with them, pouring out his life, pouring his heart into these believers. So he's asking, do you guys not know who I am? Do we really have to go through introductions again and I have to go and work for your trust again? And so his answer to that question is no. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. He tells them the transformation that has taken place in your life, there's all the proof that you need. There's the proof that you need that God is working through my ministry. There's the proof that you need that the gospel is true, that Jesus can be trusted. There's the proof. And so that's Paul's reply, and that's the passage we looked at right before this. Because the Corinthians, they had heard the gospel, they had believed it, they had become believers, they've been given the Spirit, the Spirit's working in their life, 
Transformation has happened. They have been made new. And in this section, Paul points them to their own transformation as proof that he himself is the real thing. That he's truly an apostle and most importantly, that his message about Christ is true. And so this leads us to our passage this morning. It's chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, and I'll read. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The first thing Paul says in verse 2 is, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So what hope is Paul referring to? To find out, let's look back. Chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So what he's saying is, What he's saying there is that God has qualified him to be a minister under this new covenant. And then he he says, now if the ministry of death, which is the old covenant, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So what Paul does here is he compares the new covenant to the old covenant. He's saying that if the old covenant, which he calls the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, because that's what it produced. If it was so glorious that when Moses walked down the mountain, his face was shining, how much more glorious will the new covenant be? He calls the new covenant the ministry of the spirit. He calls it the ministry of righteousness. And a couple chapters later, he calls it the ministry of reconciliation. And what he's saying is that under the new covenant, people actually become believers. Their hearts are actually changed. They actually experience transformation. This is not something that happened under the old covenant. The old covenant produced death. Believers under the new covenant, they are made right with God, and they are being transformed by God. So the hope that Paul refers to here, when it comes to the Corinthians, because they're believers under the new covenant, they will grow in the faith. That's what gives Paul his boldness in ministry. They will continually grow in their love for God. They will desire to obey him. This is what Ben talked about last week when he said that believers in Christ are given saving faith that produces good works and endures to the end of a believer's life. This is the hope that we have because of the new covenant. And it's because under the new covenant, believers are being transformed by the Spirit of God. So Paul says, 
since we have such a hope from the new covenant, we are very bold. What does Paul mean when he says we are very bold? Let's look at the boldness of Paul. We don't have to look very far. It's all throughout the New Testament. We call this letter that we're going through 2 Corinthians. So we might just assume, if we didn't know any better, that this was the second letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians. But we know that that's not true. Because just by reading these two letters, we find out that there have been other letters. There have been at least four letters written by Paul to the Corinthians. There was the first letter, which is sometimes called the warning letter, which sounds pleasant, right? He refers to this letter in 1 Corinthians. Then there's 1 Corinthians, which we have in the Bible. And the entire purpose of that letter is to correct this church, not just over one issue, but over several issues. It's a long letter, 16 chapters, and the entire letter is him correcting and rebuking the Corinthians. And he does not waste any time. In the very first chapter, Paul jumps right in. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. He spends the next three chapters correcting these divisions and rebuking them for the fighting that was going on inside the church. And then in chapter 5, he harshly rebukes them for not confronting a member of the church that was committing open sexual immorality. He throws that guy out of that church. In chapter 6, he rebukes them for bringing lawsuits against one another. He says, you guys are casting a bad light on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He then corrects some of them for being involved with prostitutes in an attempt to bring over some of their pagan practices over to Christianity. In chapter 7, he brings clarity and correction to the topic of marriage and celibacy. In chapters 8 through 10, he rebukes them for using their Christian freedom to harm other believers' consciences. In chapter 11, he corrects them on how they were taking the Lord's Supper. You had some of the poorer people in the church They were getting left out of the Lord's Supper altogether, and then you had some people getting drunk off of the wine. So he corrects them. In chapters 12 through 14, he corrects them in their use of spiritual gifts. And this is where we see the famous wedding chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It actually comes right in the middle of a harsh rebuke. That's the context. Then finally, in chapter 15, he corrects the deadly doctrinal error that was being spread around that church at the time that said there was no resurrection from the dead. Paul says if there's no resurrection, then Christianity is a joke. And so he corrects that doctrinal error over and over and over again. Paul corrects the beliefs and the practices of the Corinthian believers. Why? Why does he do this? Why is he so persistent? Why is he so passionate? Is he being mean? Is he trying to destroy the church? Is he trying to show them who's in charge? Is he trying to assert his dominance over them? No. He does it because he loves them. He does it because he loves them dearly. He says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul had been the first person to share the gospel with the Corinthians. He spent 18 months of his life with them, building them up, helping them to grow as believers. He's poured his heart and soul into this group of people. Now, after writing 1 Corinthians, he visits them. It was that serious what was going on there. And this was not a good visit. We're going to read about this later on in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about the visit. He says that he was publicly opposed. There was this small group of Corinthians that were trying to take over the church. He was publicly opposed by these guys. And he said, to make matters worse, no one came to his defense. And so Paul leaves. But he doesn't give up on them. He writes them another letter. Many refer to this letter as the letter of tears because tears were shed by Paul and tears were shed by the Corinthians. It's a harsh letter. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that he almost regretted writing this letter, but then he didn't because he realized that although it was harsh and although it caused them pain, it led to their repentance. And so Paul is persistent with the Corinthians. Over and over again, Paul does all that he can to help them. He doesn't hold back. He corrects them. He rebukes them. He points out their sin. He encourages them over and over again, all in an effort to help them grow and mature in Christ. Now, if you're like me, you want people to like you. Sometimes it seems like that's my highest goal in life is just to get people to like me. I've always been the nice guy that got along with everybody. So this leads to a lot of problems for me, honestly, when it comes to loving people, because oftentimes I avoid confrontation at all costs. I will avoid awkward conversations. I will let it go on and on and on until it reaches just a boiling point where you have to deal with it. And so Paul does not seem to be bothered by that at all. He doesn't seem overly concerned with people not liking him. He's willing to go through whatever it takes to see people become believers and then to help those believers grow up in Christ. When it comes to ministry, Paul is bold. He is confident. And I hope we can get some of that same confidence this morning from this passage. Let's look back at verse 12. Paul says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What Paul does here is compare himself to Moses. He compares himself, a minister under the new covenant, to Moses, who was a minister under the old covenant. And last week, if you remember, we look back at Exodus 34 which was the story of Moses coming down the mountain, coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, Moses had been on that mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. When he comes down from the mountain, his face is shining. When Aaron the priest and the other Israelites, they see the shining face of Moses, they're terrified. They won't come near Moses. So what does Moses do? He covers his face with a veil. Exodus 34, 34 says, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, 
he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So when Moses speaks to the people of Israel, he covers his face with a veil. He would keep the veil over his face until he'd go back into the tent and meet with God. And so in chapter 33, uh, we're told that anywhere the Israelites would go, Moses would set up a tent away from everyone else, and it's there that God would meet with him. So Moses would go back to the tent, meet with God. God would give him words to say. He would leave the tent, put the veil on, and go back and speak with the Israelites. So Paul, because he's under the new covenant, he knows that the Spirit of God is working in believers' hearts. As a result of this, he is very bold with the Corinthians. Moses, on the other hand, as we see in Exodus 34, he's not very bold at all. He actually hides his face from the Israelites. Why does he do that? Well, Paul tells us in the very next verse, if you look at verse 14, talking about the Israelites, he says, but their minds were hardened. What does Paul mean when he says that? Well, when it comes to the Israelites, the Bible over and over again, for the most part, declares that these Israelites, the nation of Israel as a whole, they were an unbelieving group of people. Most of them didn't truly know God. They didn't love him. They didn't delight in him. They had been born into this nation. So if you're an American, just as you're born in America, you become an American citizen, that's how Israelites, that's how it was for them. They were born into this nation. Becoming a member of the nation of Israel, it had nothing to do with a life change or with a heart change. And so when Paul says, we are bold, not like Moses, he's saying that Moses, under the old covenant, had no hope of seeing the Israelites grow in their love for God and their love for others. He had no hope of seeing them transformed. So instead of being bold with them, instead of being open with them, with the glory of God, allowing them to look on his face, he covers his face with a veil. He hides the glory of God from the Israelites. Now, I've told you guys before that I grew up playing baseball. I was a baseball guy. That was my first love. I remember, I remember lots of details from even T-ball. When I played T-ball, first I was on the Dodgers, then the Pirates, then the Yankees. I can remember hitting my first home run. I was on the Pirates. I never did hit one over the fence, but I hit one down the third base line, rolled all the way to the fence, and I rounded the bases, and I remember being so proud of that. I can still remember it today. I remember all sorts of details. I could literally stand up here, and I won't do this, but I could stand up here for hours and hours and hours telling you different stories about t-ball, about coach pitch, about minor league, major league, tournaments I played in, people we played against. I could tell you some little nine-year-old kid's name, Chris Faircloth, who pitched for Dunn. We played them back in the day. And I can tell you the hits that I got off of certain people. Anyway, I could tell you all the details. Emily's always amazed when I'm telling her these stories because of the details that I can just remember. But of all the details I remember, one thing I do not remember is our t-ball coaches ever yelling at us. 
I don't remember that happening. You know, we probably should have been yelled at by them because honestly, T-ball, you know, we're just out there being crazy. You've got little Susie out in left field. She's picking flowers and twirling around. You've got little Johnny is completely turned around. He's watching the game that's going on back there. And then true story, there's a little girl named Tabitha. I'm not sure why, but I remember she was always crying, always crying. She hated T-ball. She hated being there, but she played right field. She's always crying. And then my favorite thing to do back in the day is I used to take my glove and put it over my face and I'm playing first base. And this is how I played. I would just look out through the little holes in my glove. And that's how I like to play. I was in my own little world. But our coaches, they never yelled at us. Why? It's because we were six, seven, eight years old. They were happy if they could just corral us and keep us on the field for an hour so we could play. They were happy if we just had fun and learned a little something. But fast forward 10 years to when I'm playing high school baseball. It's a completely different story. Our coaches, now they were great amazing coaches, but they yelled at us all the time. If you would have watched any of our practices, you would have thought that it was some kind of army or marine boot camp, honestly. Our first week of practice, I won't even tell you what we called it because it's not appropriate, but the whole reason behind the first week of practice was to try to get people to quit. Honestly, we ran so much during that week. And and if you could just stick around You were on the team because that means you wanted to be there, right? Everybody else quit. And so our coaches were very hard on us. They yelled at us. If we weren't focused, if we weren't enthusiastic, they would make us run. It could be five minutes before the game's about to start. If they don't like our attitude, they would send us down the right field line to run sprints. And it was like this the whole time. But they were amazing coaches. And why were they like that? It's because they had high expectations for us. They knew what we were capable of. They saw stuff in us that we didn't even see. They expected us to focus. They expected us to work hard, to play hard. They expected us to play well. And it's because they had high expectations for us. And they were not like my t-ball coaches. That no matter the crazy, silly things that we were doing, they just wanted to help us have fun and maybe learn some stuff. Our high school baseball coaches were not like that. And they were right to have high expectations of us. In the same way, Paul, when it comes to the Corinthians and when it comes to other believers, he has high expectations for them. Because of the new covenant... Because the Corinthians were believers who loved God and desired to live for him, because the Spirit of God was at work in their lives, Paul knew that he could be bold with the Corinthians. He knew that he could be bold with believers. And notice that Paul doesn't say, since we have such a hope, we are very passive. We are very lazy. He does not say that. Now, if someone told you, like I'm doing right now, that the Spirit of God was working in believers to cause them to grow, you might be tempted to think that you don't have a part to play. You might think, well, God has this under control. 
God doesn't need me. And let's be honest, God does have this under control and God doesn't need us. But the exciting part is that he invites you and I to be a part of what he's doing in other believers' lives. That's the exciting part. And Paul understood this. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't passive. Instead, he was bold and confident because of the work the Spirit of God was doing in his brothers and sisters. So Paul continues in verse 14. For to this day, speaking of the Israelites, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul says here that just as Moses put a veil over his face to hide the glory of God from the Israelites, that the Israelites themselves have a veil over their heart. The veil that Moses wore, it kept the glory of God from shining and from being seen by the Israelites. And the veil that's over the hearts of the Israelites, it works the same way. It keeps them from seeing the glory of God. So Moses wore a literal veil over his face. Paul tells us that the Israelites, they have a figurative veil over their face. This veil keeps them from seeing the glory of God. Now we know from the rest of the Bible that it's not just the Israelites that have hardened hearts, is it? This is the condition of all human beings apart from God. We all have hardened hearts. And because of the hardness of our hearts, There is a veil over our hearts that prevents us from seeing the glory of God. This is our biggest problem. In his letter to the Romans, Paul spends the first three chapters presenting a case. And the case is that all human beings are guilty before God. At the end of that argument, Paul strings together a series of Old Testament verses to describe the human condition. So we're going to read that. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. Paul says, as it is written, so he's quoting the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now what's ironic about this passage in Romans is that Each of these verses he quotes from the Old Testament are actually describing the Israelites under the Old Covenant. So Paul takes these verses and he uses them to describe the condition of not just the Israelites, but all humanity. Now this is bad news, but it's this bad news that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ such good news. 
Because the truth is we're all guilty of rebellion towards God. We're all born with hardened hearts. And if that's not bad enough, Paul tells us in Romans 5, we've even inherited the guilt of our first father, Adam. The cards are stacked against us. But as Paul says in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came to earth as a man. He died on a cross in our place for our sins. He died the death that we deserve to die. And so that's the good news of the gospel. If you repent and believe that message, bowing your knee to the leadership of God, trusting in Christ to save you from the wrath of God, you'll be saved. God makes you a believer. He adopts you into his family. And if you're a believer in Christ, the good news is you no longer have a hardened heart. God has given you a new heart. You're no longer a rebel. You've been made new. That's what this series is about. The Spirit of God is working in you to cause you to love God more and more. And when you become a believer, the veil that once kept you from seeing the glory of God, it is removed by the Spirit of God. Now look at verse 18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is this that gives Paul boldness in ministry. Paul knows that believers under the new covenant, they no longer have hardened hearts. And the veil that once kept those believers from seeing the glory of God, it's been removed. Paul knows this. It gives him boldness. In this verse, Paul points us back to Exodus 34 again. The story about Moses. When Moses would remove the veil to meet with God. And just as Moses was transformed by seeing the glory of God, believers under the new covenant are transformed that way as well. Now, what does it mean for us sitting in this room to behold the glory of God? If we look back at Exodus 34, the chapter begins with Moses up on the mountain meeting with God. While Moses is talking to God, and I'm going to paraphrase this, he says, if I have found favor with you, show me your glory. And God, I'm paraphrasing again, God says, Okay, I will. God says, you can't see my face because you would die. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you here on this rock. I'm going to pass by in front of you. I'll hide your face until I pass by, and then I'll let you see me from behind. And so God shows his glory to Moses, but he does something interesting. We're going to read it. Exodus 34, verse 5. God's word says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So God shows his glory to Moses, but notice that he doesn't just give Moses some ecstatic, exciting experience. That's not all that he does. He doesn't just show him something that would give him goosebumps or maybe raise his dopamine level for a little while. He doesn't just give him a mountaintop experience. And that's where we get that term, right? He does those things, but that's not all that God does. Before he passed by Moses, Exodus says that God called out his own name. And then as he passes by Moses, he tells Moses who he is. He describes himself to Moses. He tells Moses, I'm slow to anger. I'm filled with unfailing love. I'm filled with faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He wants Moses to know who he is. God didn't just want to give Moses a cool story to tell or a few few goosebumps. He wanted Moses to know him. Paul says in the same way that as believers in Christ, behold the glory of God. That is, as we know him more and more, we are transformed into his image. Now here at Integrity, we say that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And the reason why we say that is because what you believe about God, it affects everything you do. It affects the way you live your life. It affects the way you see other people. It affects the way you see yourself. It affects the way you see everything. So what we need more than anything is a greater knowledge of God. This is our greatest need. If we're going to be transformed as believers, we must see the glory of God. We must get to know God. Now this means that the most loving thing that you and I can do for our brothers and sisters is to point them to God over and over and over again. Point them to God. When things are going well, we need to point each other to God. When things are difficult, we need to point each other to God. That's our job as believers. That's how we love each other. It's by pointing each other to God. As a church, we also believe that discipleship happens in community. And so I want to challenge you this morning that if you're not involved in the community of Integrity Church, join a small group. It's not too late. They meet on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, We meet Tuesday nights at 6.30 at the Sharon House. We would love to have you. It's not too late to join a small group. Small groups are a place for us to be able to serve each other, love each other, get to know each other. We share meals together. We read the Bible together. We pray for one another. It's a great place to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And then for some of you, maybe you're in a small group. Let me challenge you this morning to get involved in the lives of other believers. And that could look like a million different things, honestly. It might look like this week you're just going up to somebody and saying, hey, would you like to get coffee? Would you like to talk? And maybe that leads to you guys reading the Bible together for a few weeks. If you're an older couple, invite a younger couple over to your house for dinner. 
I can tell you, Emily and I have been so encouraged from the time we met to now being married two years when we've been invited over to older couples' houses for dinner. We've been so encouraged by people like Kirk and Linda Birch opening up their house to have us over so that we can grow and learn from them so that they can help us and challenge us and hold us accountable and encourage us. So I encourage you, get involved in the life of other believers. And again, it doesn't have to be intense. Like we read a little bit of 1 Corinthians. We're going through 2 Corinthians. It doesn't have to be this confrontational thing. That's not all that needs to happen. It can be, it can be just as simple as getting coffee with someone. So I want to challenge you this morning. If you're a believer, get involved in community. That's where discipleship happens. Because as believers, we have the exciting opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in the lives of other people. That's why Ben just talked about the Be Generous offering that we're going to be doing over the next month. It's an opportunity for us to be involved in what God's doing in Greenville, Winter, or Wilmington, Winterville too, and around the world. And so I encourage you, get involved in the lives of other people. Now there's a million, as I said a minute ago, there's a million different ways that, that discipleship can look. The important thing is, is that we're being intentional about it. Because the spirit of God is working in the hearts of our brothers and sisters, we can boldly, confidently engage in discipleship. May God help us this morning. Let's pray.